0: Hello, friends. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you're a new listener, the PK Podcast is a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $19 billion promotional products business. I'm Bobby LeHue, as Mark uh, mentioned, Chief Branding Officer at Robin Promotions. I'm joined by Mark, President of Right Sleeve and CEO of SKU. Uh, not only is today's podcast sponsored by our friends at the book company, but all of our live listeners on this broadcast received a copy of Dan's book, courtesy of the book company. We at Robin have been long-time customers and avid fans of the book company and the work they do. I can't recommend them high enough. You can visit their website at thebookco.com. And while you're there, check out the cool journals. Awesome company. Dan Pink is the author of five provocative books, including the long-running New York Times bestsellers, The Whole New Mind and *Drive*. His latest book, To Sell is Human, is a number one New York Times business bestseller, a number one Wall Street Journal business bestseller, and a number one Washington Post nonfiction bestseller. Dan's books have been translated into 34 languages. He lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife and their three children. Welcome, Dan, to the Promo Kitchen community.
1: Hi, uh, it's great to be in the kitchen.
2: We'll have to ask you your favorite recipe in a second, uh, but before we get to that, I I wanted to say that I've been a a fan of yours for for quite some time, really have enjoyed your book's uh, drive in particular, and uh, To Sell as Human really changed my view as a salesperson, but also as a business owner, so I just wanted to give you that context before we started. But my question for you, Dan, as we start off here, is that. I'm a small business owner. I've been a small business owner for the last 15 years, and I think I'm fairly representative of a lot of the people on this call and also in the industry. And I've seen firsthand how everyone in our organization is now truly engaged in sales, not just the salespeople. Uh, this includes everyone from the account team to customer service to production, and it's really amazing to see how everyone's come together and, and to be engaged in sales. So my question to you is, do you see this trend towards building more service-oriented sales teams as a true, viable, long-term reality in light of how long sales forces have been employed in aggressive and extroverted sales tactics for so many decades? Is this just a blip or is it
1: the real deal? Uh, now I'm pretty convinced it's the real deal. I think it's a really good question, and, and I, I think there's so many, so many, so many great insights in that in the question itself. I mean, one of the at a, at a broad level, one of the great insights is our resistance to extrapolate from our own experiences. So right. if you have individual small business owners, individual entrepreneurs who are experiencing these things, something whether it's the phenomenon that everybody throughout their organization has some kind of sales function or ought to have some kind of sales function, or that somehow that the terms of business and the rules of the road have shifted a little bit, there's a tendency for people to think, oh, that must just, that must just be me. But one of the great things about building this kind of community is that people realize, hey, it's not just me. Hmm. And, and I think that's really a fact of life right now. That, and let me unpack this a little bit. We've done some – this book to sell as human has some interesting research. It's of the American workforce, um, and it shows that people on average are spending about 40% of their time on the job in what I like to call non-sale selling, convincing, persuading, influencing. Hmm. And that's a lot of time. That's 24 minutes of every hour. And I think it's even more prominent amongst, in, in smaller firms because smaller firms, are, for, for two reasons. Number one, smaller firms are, more, are, are closer to the customer. Number two, smaller firms are less segmented by function. So um, s- smaller firms you know, don't have everybody swimming in their, in their own lane because they often don't have the luxury of having lanes. And so, and I think it's a permanent fact. I think it's a fact of life. And I think what's interesting about it is that the trend seems to hold even when companies grow and scale. Let me give you two quick examples of this. Uh, Let's talk about, um, you know, these are um, small businesses by 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 a different metric. Um, You know, small businesses compared to say large public companies, but. There's a company I've written about called Atlassian, Australian software company. Another company I've written about called uh, Palantir Technologies. Um, And uh, these are companies that uh, Atlassian has $100 million a year in sales, which to me is like much more than a small business, but in the grand scheme of things, much smaller than a public company. And uh, Palantir has $300 million a year in sales. So these things are at a far greater scope or scale than the traditional small business, and yet. This company, let's take Palantir, with $300 million a year in sales, you know, it's you know, over a quarter of a billion U.S. dollars in sales, mm. doesn't have any salespeople. Yeah. And when you ask these folks this question, they give answers very much like the one that was embedded in your question, which is, well, everybody's in sales and therefore no one's in sales. Yeah. No one's in sales because everyone's in sales. And I, I really do think that this is becoming a much greater phenomenon in, especially in smaller firms, but even as smaller firms scale and grow larger.
0: Dan, one of the myths that you help dispel in your book is the myth that extroverts make the best salespeople. Your book points out that neither extroverts nor introverts make the best salespeople, rather than the ambiverts, those in the middle. What does this mean for those of us who are recruiting and training salespeople, and what types of skills do salespeople develop in light of being a better ambivert?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's important to understand the research and how much this goes against both... Um, conventional wisdom and conventional practice. I mean, if you look at the numbers, um, here's what it shows: extroverts are more likely to get hired in sales jobs. Extroverts are more likely to get promoted in sales jobs. But the link between extroversion and sales performance has always been essentially non-existent. And so, there's some interesting um, uh, there's some interesting research uh, from Adam Grant uh, that showed. Um, here 's what he did He measured the introversion extroversion scores of a sales force a software sales force, uh, and then they went out then he measured how much they sold, so they knew who the introverts are, they knew who the extroverts are and as, as you said, it turned out that strong introverts weren 't very good salespeople Not, no surprise there, but it also turned out that strong extroverts they weren 't much better, and the people who ended up doing best, as you say, are people who were ambiverts that is. They were, this is a term that's been around since the 1920s, and it describes people who are somewhat introverted and somewhat extroverted. They're not on one extreme. And the reason these folks do better is that they're more, I mean, go back to the prefix ambivert. Think about ambidextrousness. They, are, they can go left, they can go right. So they know when to push, they know when to shut up. They know when to um, talk, they know when to hold back. And it's really these folks, uh, Adam Grant's research shows, are the ones who end up being the most effective because they are more modulated, more, more, um, more that way. And, and so as for the question about hiring, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of personality assessments as a way to hire um, just because I, I don't think that they have a huge amount of predictive value. So I'd hate to say give everybody a test. And, take, and hire the ambiverts and not the inter, strong introverts or extroverts, but I actually don 't think you need to do that for a practical reason. Um, if you look at the distribution of introversion extroversion in the population, hmm. what it shows is that most of us are ambiverts. Um, yeah. A few of us are very strong introverts, a few of us are very strong extroverts, but most of us are kind of in the middle and so I think the real lesson of this research is that to be effective at sales you don 't have to be a kind of stereotypical back slapping, glad handing, super gregarious kind of person. I think the people who do the best at it are the people who are kind of in between and the way to get better at it is not to be more like that super extroverted gregarious guy but to be a little bit more like yourself.
2: Hmm. You you know, I I just wanted to throw in a sub point there, Dan. I think it's really interesting. Uh, uh, Bobby and I are quite involved uh, as well as a number of other people in Promo Kitchen speaking about social media. and, and, and really exploring the kinds of people that have done really well on social media. And this is not a question or a comment so much about social media, but it ties back into your comment about Ambiverts that what we find are the people that are the most successful today on social media and using it as a sales tactic are those people that are great listeners. And they're great at uh, obviously promoting content and, and, and promoting themselves, but they're also really amazing at using it as a communication tool. And I know when I'm speaking to a lot of people about trying to figure out these new tools, it's often the ones that are the, the, the loud, backslapping, good old boy kind of salespeople that might have done really well a couple of decades ago or maybe even a couple of years ago are the ones that are really struggling in this new environment. So I, I just think there's an interesting uh, connection there as we consider some of the new communication social tools that
1: we have available to us. Uh, I think it's a great point. I, I think that a lot of people, um, uh, I think it's a very insightful point. I, I think a lot of people look at these social media tools as ways to talk more, but they ought to be ways for us to listen more.
2: So, uh, anyways, that, that, I just wanted to make that point because I was just thinking about the the, uh, the connection. So, Dan, I want to throw you a, a bit of a tough question here. So, Uh-oh. I, I know. Right? Well, you're 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 a smart guy, so you'll be able to answer it well. But my right. my question is: so I I want to represent the voice of a typical person in this industry. So okay. I'm a, I'm either an owner salesperson or I'm a I, I'm an owner myself, and I've got a couple of salespeople, and I totally buy into your argument that you have uh, put forward in Drive where you really question this carrot and stick, this whole idea of how financial incentives are not really the be-all and end-all when it comes to incenting the modern worker, particularly someone that is engaged in uh, cognitive thinking. And I totally buy that. But at the same time, I've got five salespeople on my payroll and all of them are coming into my office saying, money, money, money. Like, how can I make more money? Uh, after every deal, they're, they're, they're coming after me for commission splits, and they're looking at the money at the end of the day because that's what they're really motivated by. So I'm, I'm conflicted. On one hand, I go, I buy it, I understand it, I'm investing in culture and education and all of these other cool non-financial things, but at the end of the day, I still have a lineup out my office of people that are saying, show me the money. Show me the, the the commission split. So how do I reconcile that and apply that to my day-to-day small business reality? Great, great question.
1: All right. So let me, can I, let me take a couple steps back to um, give, you a, give your listeners a little bit more of the context because I think there's a little bit of um, – when we bring money into the situation – uh, e- even when we talk about it, that it, what's really important to understand is that the problem with some of these kinds of rewards is not the money per se. Uh, money just gives us something to latch onto, but it's not the money per se. So let me just set this out and, and make it clear. Um, here's what the research shows very clearly. There's a certain kind of reward that we use in organizations, of which and, and, and sales commissions are in some ways the classic kind of this reward. I call it an if-then reward. If you do this, then you get that. If you do this, then you get that. It's a controlling contingent reward. Here's what the research shows pretty clearly. If then rewards are actually effective for certain kinds of tasks, for um, uh, routine, algorithmic, straightforward kinds of tasks where you're following a recipe. Could be with your head, could be with your back. Uh, you're turning the same screw the same way on an assembly line. You're following a discrete process. You're crunching numbers to get to a specific right answer. So again, it's very important to understand that that if-then rewards are actually effective for that kind of work. Right. Okay. Right. However, if-then rewards are not effective for more complex, creative, conceptual work. Work that requires more judgment, creativity. Uh, discernment and so forth. So that's what's really important. So, so let's forget about money for a second and focus. The problem isn't the money. The focus is the if-thenness. Now here's the thing: if your sales force is doing work, is is involved in basically purely transactional sales, yep. where it's a distinct, discrete process, where there isn't a lot of creativity, where there isn't a lot of judgment, then I actually think that the research shows pretty cl- clearly you should use if-then rewards. Okay. Now. The downside of that is that if your sales process, if what you're selling, if the functions of these salespeople are purely routine, algorithmic, and transactional, I think you're probably making a big mistake. uh, That you're either in the wrong business or you're in a business with very thin margins or you're in something where you actually don't need that dedicated sales force. But leaving aside that strategic question, if the functions that you're trying to motivate are routine algorithmic functions, if then rewards are effective. They're not necessarily the most effective. They're not necessarily the only way to do things. But if you want to be honest and look at the research and the evidence, it shows you can use if-then rewards for that kind of stuff. So that's what that, that's what's important. So it's not a, so that's a big part. The other thing, let's talk. So let me get that out of the way first. Now let's talk about money. Money matters. Yeah. The research doesn't say that money mat doesn't matter. Money matters a heck of a lot. Mm. Uh, but it matters in a slightly different way. Um, The thing is, is that you've got to pay people enough. If you don't pay people enough, uh, you're not going to get motivation. And really, in many cases, money is a way for people to assess fairness. Not in every way, but it's a way for people to assess fairness. And one of the things that's very clear in the research on the workforce is that if you violate the norm of fairness, you are toast. It's over. Um, And so, so again, it's – so, it's, so money, you've got to pay people enough. People have to earn a living. People have to be paid fairly. Okay, so those are two really important things. Money does matter, and if then, rewards are effective for one kind of activity and less effective for another kind of activity. All right? So forgive this long-winded professorial answer, but I think we've really got to establish that context here. So yeah. let's go in more deeply into the question itself. Suppose you have a sales force that is, um, that has a, that is selling a complicated product, that requires customer, or service, that requires some degree of customization, that requires a deep understanding of the customer's business, um, uh, you know, the prospect or customer's business, that has a very long sales cycle, I actually think that you need to challenge, for that kind of work, you need to challenge the orthodoxy of whether you should pay those folks commissions. Um, or whether there's another form of compensation that would work just as well. So, because the idea is that these if-then rewards end up narrowing people's focus and shortening their time horizons. And what you want for that particular kind of sales is actually a wider focus and a longer time horizon. Right. Now, so I think you've got to challenge the conventional wisdom. I'm not saying that you don't do it. What I'm saying is that this idea that sales commissions are a universal elixir for all issues is just not true. Yeah. Um, and, the, and that the really smart companies challenge the orthodoxy. And an alternative view, an alternative way to do this would be something like the following, would be to take your, first of all, hire great people. That's one of the things that gets overlooked in this conversation all the time. We have this false notion that if we have some kind of carefully calibrated incentive system, we can plug any kind of input, any kind of person into it, and they will behave as we expect in a very predictable fashion, which is fundamentally not true. Right. Um, so hire great people, hire great people, hire great people. If you have a more compl- if you have again, a, if, if you're, what you're selling is complex, what you're selling involves customization, what you're selling involves getting a deep understanding of the customer's or prospect's business, what you're selling has a very long sales cycle, I think there's an argument for doing this. Pay people healthy base salaries and then offer some amount of variable pay perhaps even tied to company performance Hmm. Um, and let me give you an example of how that might so let me give an example a real-life example of how this would work Um, and again sorry guys for the the long answer but it's an important question so let me tell you about a, a UK company called Redgate Software Redgate Software again seems to fit this this profile that I'm describing they have a complex product They're selling to a business customer. The product requires some degree of customization in order for it to work properly. Their sales cycles are reasonably long. The people who are doing the selling have to have a a very, very good understanding of the prospect's business, et cetera, et cetera. So Redgate had uh, sales commissions, and their CEO found out that many people were, many of the people in the sales force were gaming the compensation system. They were trying to configure it so that it worked better for them rather than for the company. So the company then made the sales compensation structure more complicated, to which the salespeople responded by, you know, just upping their behavior. Um, and so you ended up with this <coughs> race between a very complex commission system and a, a commission system getting more complex each day and a sales force trying even harder to try to game it. So finally the CEO, and this is a private company, not a huge company, Um, said, all right, I'm going to eliminate sales commissions for our sales force. I'm going to raise base salaries, and I'm going to institute some kind of profit sharing. What happened there? Well, a handful of salespeople quit. No question about that. Hmm. Um, But what ultimately happened is that sales went up. And as the CEO, Neil Davidson, explains it, the the reason they went up for, for a host of factors, number one, people were more collaborative Um, that is, if individual salespeople have individual incentives, then why should I ever help you? In fact, I should try to poach from you. That's actually a more rational approach. (laughs) This way, there was much greater collaboration, which led to better solutions for customers. Number two, customers liked it better. Customers liked the idea that these salespeople weren't trying to ring up a big total to get a commission, but were actually trying to provide insights to help them on their business. The other thing which your question goes to, the other thing that, that ended up is that Neil and his leadership team ended up with a lot more time on their hands because, as you're suggesting, they ended up spending a lot less time uh, litigating the commission systems, figuring out how to split commissions, hearing grievances, oh, I got screwed on that, and he got, an over, he got too much of an advantage on that. And that freed up their time to do other things. So, so my point is that, again, just to try to wrap up this very large package here, go back to first principles. If, if, if the task itself is simple, mechanical, and algorithmic, if-then rewards are not necessarily a bad idea. But if the task is more complicated, more creative, more conceptual, if-then rewards, the science is very clear, don't work very well. But the conclusion from that is that not that you don't pay people. The conclusion from that is that you have a, a compensation system that pays people well and that pays people fairly and that doesn't distort their behavior. And the way to do that in a sales context isn't necessarily to eliminate commissions wholesale and so say, were never going to do it again, but to challenge the orthodoxy that commissions are the only way to motivate salespeople.
0: Mark, uh, Dan just answered why uh, the pr- struggles exist in our industry for, for program selling versus transactional selling, and layering that yeah. traditional, traditional commission structure over those two big parts of our business. Uh, but that's, a, but
1: that's a really, really important point. It's not just sales. Here's the thing. You know, the trouble is, is that there's nuance, and, and we tend to not like nuance. We like simple solutions. We don't like any kind of degree of complexity, and we want to be able to come up with an easy three-step answer to apply. And basically, what and this is true more broadly in the workplace. You know, if then rewards were effective when people – forget about sales – when people were doing much more mechanical algorithmic work, when they were turning a screw the same way on an assembly line, when they were right. adding up columns of figures. Yep. And what's happened is, is that the legacy of using those kinds of motivators for those kinds of tasks has stayed with us, even though we're doing fewer and fewer of those kinds yeah. of tasks.
2: Yeah, it's exactly like what Seth Godin talks about with the whole old uh, factory culture and how that doesn't really exist anymore, but some people still seem to hold on to that. So it's very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: You know, something else very specific to our industry, Dan, we're in the process of decommoditizing our medium, shifting gears a little bit, decommoditizing our medium, what we sell in the eyes of our clients. I think there was something critical for our industry in your topic on the experience frame. You discussed a distinction between material purchases, the product we buy, versus the experiential uh, purchases, a purchase that one lives through or experiences. An example you cited is the BMW. Uh, versus that hike on Canada's West Coast Trail. So in our industry, we sell a tangible product, but in reality, we're selling a mechanism for an emotional transaction to occur. An example, you speak all the time. Those organizations that you speak at, we will sell a speaker's gift to them. You get the speaker's gift. So that moment is what we're selling. Uh, however, you know, do, you have, do you have suggestions for us on how we frame this sell to our customers in more experiential, experiential terms and how to move them to that, that experience as opposed to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's actually a hard thing to do. And so, um, I- again, if you, go to the, uh, if you go to the science of it, and this is really about, you know, in some ways about repeat customers more than anything else. It's about taking the longer view. Um, the, the research is pretty clear that, um, um, you know, as you say, that there's a difference between material purchases and experiential pur- pur- purchases. And what the research shows pretty clearly is that people end up being much more satisfied deriving much greater satisfaction from experiential purchases rather than material purchases. The truth is, is that sometimes we're still selling stuff. And so what you have to do is you have to look for ways is like, why, why is my stuff, whether it's a, a speaker gift, whether it's a, an automobile, whether it's a garden hose, um, how do you change the frame around that, the context around that, to think about that as an element in an experience rather than simply a freestanding item itself? That's, a, that's actually a, a pretty sophisticated cognitive move, but I think that it's, I think that it's really um, important. And, 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 and the research is pretty clear that framing a sale in these experiential terms is more likely to lead to dissatisfied customers and repeat business. So what yeah. you have to do, I think, and it's a difficult thing to do, it requires practice, is take a step back if you're selling a product, if you're selling a physical item, and say, how is this item part of the buyer, the prospect's experience? And talk about the experience of using it uh, of actually integrating that, that product into one 's life rather than about the collection of atoms that is the product itself yeah. um, again there's not a I wish there were kind of a simple, easy algorithm to follow to do that. I think it's a matter of of you know stopping, taking a step back and giving it a try, stopping taking a step back and giving it another try, and, and having it become a more instinctive part of your repertoire. The truth is that good salespeople have always done this in a way that's kind of subconscious, um, and the the evidence now is bearing out that it works really well.
0: And for those listening that haven't read through, the five whys can probably help you get to that experiential versus product.
1: Uh, Uh, Sure, sure, yeah.
2: Uh, Dan, I just wanted to do a, a quick time check so we 're at about two twenty five right now. Are you okay for one more question uh yeah, before yeah. we jump into some uh, a couple audience member questions? Just want to make sure you 're okay sure with that, that. Yep, okay cool yeah, yeah. I mean hey, we could stay here all day so <laughs> so my i 've got a question about the 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 impact of uh, the internet on our business, and I know that this is something that is top of people's minds within this industry. And I think a lot of us, um, sorry, I'll I'll, I'll start again. I am curious uh, to get your perspective on how this industry could be disrupted by technology in the next five to 10 years. And I'll give you a little bit of context. If you look at the travel business, a lot of people would draw parallels between the travel business and the promotional products business in that there are suppliers, there are distributors, and there are end users that are looking to purchase what is deemed to be a commodity. And in the old days, you could go from one travel agent to the other and look at the best price on a flight from Chicago to New York, and boom, there you go. Uh, As we saw with Travelocity and Expedia, almost overnight they completely disrupted that market and put travel agents out of business with the exception of the people at the very high end. Do you see the promotional products industry, uh, an industry almost the same size uh, and, and very similar in terms of makeup, going the same way? And the one thing I will say is that so far it's not really going the same way. The internet businesses so far at the present are certainly gaining ground, but not they're certainly not the 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 majority, or they certainly don't make up the majority of the of, of the industry. And so I'm curious, in the next five to ten years, are we a sitting time bomb or if we apply all the principles in your book we'll be fine?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well I think the answer to that question, like the answer to just about every question in life is it depends. <laughs> um um You know, it it could go either way, and it really goes to one of the distinctions that you guys were drawing earlier on, which is, you know, are you? To me, it's a difference between between uh, selling something that's a commodity and selling something that's not a commodity. Uh, If you're selling, if you're selling uh, commodity, um, if you're selling commodity products, uh, then I think that you have a problem that the internet could actually eat your lunch. So all you're doing is, is if, if, you're, if what you're doing is saying, we, we are in the business of putting uh, custom lettering on pencils, and, uh, you know, so it says, welcome to Acme Conference 2013 on pencils. Um, that's pretty much a commodity. And in that case, people are going to be shopping for the lowest price for that commodity. Yep. And they might be able to get it from an internet site because, you know, an internet vendor because that internet vendor might have greater economies of scale, doesn't have has less overhead than a, you know, traditional kind of company. Uh, and so I think that the solution to that is not to be in the commodity business and to, to move, you know, to uh, forgive me for using a management consultant phrase, but to move up the value chain and offer promotional products that are much more surprising much more awesome, much more unique, much more customized, and try to give people something they, they, they didn't know that they were missing yep. um, so if you're in the model, if, so if you're in the business of selling you know in uh, pencils with the name of the conference on it, I think you're in big trouble. Um, I, I would rather buy from an internet company than for, uh, at a lower price than from someone doing the exact same thing at a higher price yep. uh, what I think you need to do is you need to be able to understand your customers' business inside and out understand what is going to be the perfect promotional product for that particular company, or that particular industry, offer a suite of products that no one else has, that, um, and constantly push the boundaries of, of what promotional products are. I think in that case, you're going to be perfectly insulated from pressure from the Internet.
2: It's it's like Dan, you, you know, you've taken a page right out of the textbook of all the uh, the the, uh, the modern sales theories that have been applied in this industry. So you're absolutely bang on, and certainly I think music to a lot of the people's ears on this call that uh, I think have struggled with these issues, but I think many people have uh, come out the other side and are
1: certainly. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, again, as you say, it's not it's not it's not it's not brain surgery here. The thing is, if if you're if you're selling a commodity product, a commodity of any kind, it could be a commodity service. Yep. Uh, you know, a non-contested divorce. Uh, it could, you know, a commodity product, uh, 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 engraved pencil. If, you, if you're in any kind of commodity, uh, if you're selling a commodity, then you're inevitably um, competing on price. Yep. And competing on price over the long haul is a downward death spiral.
2: So I, I want to, uh, uh, Dan, I
0: want to you're jump in. to find a point on it. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> We should probably take some questions.
2: Yeah, so I uh, th- th- there's a couple of great questions here uh, that uh, if we could maybe spend a, a couple of minutes on. A, a great question here uh, uh, that's coming from someone who's asking about um, the concept of elasticity in today's workers or the idea of flexibility. And here's the question um, – this particular person says, uh, the idea that today's workers need elasticity in order to succeed makes sense to me, at least for mid to senior positions. But not all of my employees appear to be intellectually or emotionally capable, or perhaps interested in improving their elasticity. They appear to want to play a specialized role, and that's all. I am trying to create an entrepreneurial culture, so what do I do with employees who can't become elastic? Can a company yeah. succeed in today's sales-oriented world? And are with elastic and non-elastic employees, or should I fire the non-elastic <laughs> workers? And I have not listed this person's name, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll say it's from Smart anonymous.
1: Way, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a, it's actually it's actually a good it's actually a good question. You probably should say say his or her name so that the people working there can start putting their resumes on Monster. <laughs> uh, um, uh, no, it, but it's it's a really good question. Although I would I would I'd say I'd like to push back. A, well, I'd like to push back a little bit on the premise. Um, I think that a lot of people have the capacity to become a little bit more elastic than they are right now, and I would actually even double down on that and say that a lot of people have the desire to be a little bit more elastic than they are right now. Uh, what's 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 um, I think standing in the way is. The know-how of how to begin, and also the fear that they'll screw it up and it'll harm them. And so, I think the way to mitigate that is is twofold. One, um, you know, I think that you should be looking for some degree of elasticity when you hire uh, Mr. or Ms. X, um, and that uh, that should be one of the criteria you look at when you bring people on, so you're not forced to provide it entirely on your own. But recognizing, as you say, that people come at people arrive at this at different levels of development, different levels of elasticity on their own. Um, you know, the way, to make pe- the way to bring people along is not to say, okay, this person is, you know, completely segmented, this person only knows how to do one thing, and I can, but, but I can offer a series of, a, a couple of simple interventions that will make this person, you know, as elastic as Gumby and being able to stretch across any boundary whatsoever. Yep. Uh, I, I, think that's a, I think that's a fool's errand. Uh, but, I think what you can do, and something that we discount in management and leadership all the time, is the importance of small wins. Uh, I think there's almost always something that you can do' there's almost always it 's almost always true that you can do one small thing to get people to be a little bit more elastic um, it, well, I think there's always one small thing you can do in any kind of realm. so maybe you have someone who is in um, maybe you have someone who is in accounting and you want to make that person Uh, a little bit more elastic, and that person is a dedicated accountant, but that person has kind of accountant blinders on, maybe one small thing you can do is to say, listen, Fred or Jane, whatever, you know, or Jose, Maria, whatever your name is, uh, maybe you should have that person work one day, one day uh, taking calls from customers um, to sort of get them a little bit out of their comfort zone to loosen them up a little bit. And I think small steps like that can start getting people, you know, if, you're, if you have somebody who's really good, dedicated performer, um, I think you want to keep them around and getting some small steps and small wins can begin to uh, limber them up a little bit. And I, and I think you'd be surprised by how um, – that, that, that people are actually more willing to do this than you expect, what their what – their, their, their lack of willingness – is actually a fear of failure and the consequences of failure. And so if you can somehow make them understand, say, listen, I'm not setting you up for a fall. I'm not trying to make you do things that you stink at. What we're going to try to do is we're going to take one step out of your comfort zone to limber you up a little bit and and see how you do. And I think people end up surprising themselves and surprising their bosses.
2: Yeah. Bobby, do you want to ask one Uh, of the other ones here?
0: Yeah, you know, Roger Burnett, fellow chef Roger Burnett, had a great question earlier. It was, if more people are selling, should all that participate in this sales process have some variable pay component to their compensation?
1: Um, It's an interesting point, Uh, and I think the answer is, as always, it depends. Um, I think there there is something for some amount of variable pay. I mean, remember, profit sharing is variable pay. It's variable pay key to how the company is doing. And I think that those, I, I, you know, I don't have any, I think that those are generally good ideas because it's fair. I have everybody contributed to the company making profits, and everybody deserves some piece of the action. Um, I think that when you start, um, um, the only cha- the challenge of providing individual incentives, not that they're uniformly bad, but that they come with some downsides, and they require a whole apparatus to enforce. Um, so, you know they have a, they require a whole kind of administrative arm to configure, to monitor, to tally, right. to litigate, to enforce, and you know. So um, you know, maybe try. You know, that, that's why like profit sharing is a little bit simpler, a little bit more elegant, and 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 pretty fair.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, Dan, uh, he'll kill me if I don't ask the question. Uh, Craig Morantz is on the call. Hey, Craig. Um, Craig's got a lot of questions here, but I I, I wanted to. Hone in on one, uh, the question here is, uh, Craig believes the traditional field sales model is set to die with marketing automation and internet shopping experience that is now available. Are you seeing companies' sales costs going down and their marketing costs increasing via the internet? Uh,
1: it's it's an interesting question. And again, uh, I guess, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not trying to be evasive here, but I, guess I think the answer is yes and no. Um, it It really depends on what's being sold um, if again if you 're selling something that is um, that is that is a little bit more of the commodity side of the spectrum, then you might not need that field sales force and you might want to save money by not having all these folks out in the field. Um, on the other hand, if you're doing something that is higher end where you're you're moving down the spectrum of not even selling products but selling experiences and selling insights, uh, then I think there's a lot to be said. For maintaining a field sales force. Yep. So you have your, so, you know, it's much more of a kind of consultant's model where you have, or you know, at some level even an engineering model, where you actually have your people um, much closer to the customer, understanding your customer's business inside and out. And so to try to save costs on, on, for that kind of business where you're providing insights, um, where, you're, where you're helping the customer understand its own business, um, I think that cutting a field force then is actually kind of dangerous. But so, so I guess it's a way of saying it depends because it depends on what kind of business you're in. Uh, and what you see is you see, you see a mix of things. You see companies that are in more commodity businesses pulling back their field forces, but you also see companies that aren't in commodity businesses doing that because they, lo- they love the, uh, the short-term boost that the cost savings get them. Yep. They just haven't reckoned with what's going to happen six months out, two years out.
2: You know i I'll, I'll just quickly say uh, Dan and, and also Craig on the call that uh, at, at, at my company, Right Sleeve, we for many years had been very uh, focused on the internet in terms of selling the products and having uh, a well maintained and updated site that focused on all the cool products that we could sell and We did some analysis over the last year and we looked at all of our very best customers, the ones that were defined by uh, uh, the, the uh, loyalty, uh, revenue, healthy margins. And very few of them were using the site as a resource. And the people that we found that were coming through the site were uh, small, individual, price-shopping-type orders. And what we found is that we were starting to just simply refer those people to some of the larger Internet competitors in the space. And we redesigned our site completely to focus on case studies, focus on content, focus on ideas, because that's really what makes us the most money. And so that's interesting uh, uh, in that, in our case, we've always invested in that account in Salesforce and certainly invest in the Internet, but not at the expense of growing and maintaining a really good team in-house that can provide amazing solutions. So uh, we'll see yeah, what yeah, happens.
1: I think, I think that's a good way to look at it. I mean, I think, it's, I think it's a really good way to look at it. It's just a matter of, you know, you've got to get, um, again, we tend to think very much on either or, and in most cases, the solution is both and. Right. Yeah.
0: Dan, thanks for joining us. Uh, I, I, we probably need to wrap up. We really appreciate you taking the time to spend with us here today with the Promo Kitchen community. And uh, as a reminder, you know no one makes money off Promo Kitchen. We're 100% tribal, 100% volunteer-led. There are two special members of the tribe we'd like to thank who put a lot of sweat, equity, and talent in making this possible. T. Hamilton by Creative has provided all the design work for PK and Charity Gibson of GreenBananasPromo.com has led our social media efforts. Thank you both for your contributions. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach us at info at or on Twitter at promokitchen. and from all the chefs at Promo Kitchen. Thank you guys for allowing us an opportunity to serve you. And Dan, we really appreciate you taking the time.
1: It was a pleasure you guys. It was great talking with you.
2: Thank you, Dan. Thank you, everyone. This was a real highlight, and uh, we'll look forward to speaking with everyone soon.